0: You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org slash donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today.
1: Listen to the opening verse, of Matthew. Matthew wrote an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then for the next bunch of verses, he gives detailed genealogy. Might be an exciting part to read. Matthew ends his gospel with this. Jesus came near and he said to all of them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The beginning and end of Matthew's gospel. Mark. Mark starts his off with, In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. And Mark ends his gospel this way. They went out and ran from the tomb because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Luke starts his gospel this way. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So that's how he starts it. This is how Luke ends his gospel. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. Just pause and picture that. He's with them on a hill, and while he's extending blessing upon them, he begins defying gravity. Gravity no longer holds him. And he, I guess the English word would be levitates. Up and out and into a cloud. He was carried up. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. This week, in my time with you uh, in the lessons, I want to share with you the historical context of the time of Jesus and his ministry. I want us to consider uh, the the literary genre of gospel, which is unlike any other literary genre. It has elements of other types of literature, but it combines them the way no other writing before Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. It, it, It really is a unique style. We're going to look at parables as a literary type and give you some guidelines on how to get the most out of parables, how to read them, how to interpret them, how to understand them. And we'll have an overview of the four Gospels, looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the author, the recipient, the date, the historical background, and the themes of all four of them. And we'll look at how Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. And I'll give you an extended list of foretelling statements that anticipate the coming Messiah in the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfilled them in the New Testament. We'll look specifically at the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5 and then Jesus' predictions about the fall of Jerusalem and his second coming, often called the Olivet Discourse. And so we'll be focusing on those. Oh, how I wish we could go verse by verse, word by word, through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. in the time we have, can't do it. As time permits, uh, with some specific passages, we'll try to do a deep dive as much as possible while honoring the the assignment, okay? Uh, Each of us who come to give lessons in relation to your weekly reading, accept the assignment to make sure that we hit the topics and themes that will do the most to equip you as a disciple reading the scripture in 12 weeks. And again, I tell you, you are doing such a good thing that years later you will look back and say, I really am glad I did read the Bible in community, out loud with other people in 12 weeks. You might never again read the Bible in 12 weeks. Maybe you will, great. But this one time, and get supporting information, what to be thinking as you're reading. Um, So I, I, I will do my best to equip you and give perspective and context. And also deal with the specifics of the Beatitudes and the overview and the prophecies and what Jesus predicted. Each of the Gospels takes an own, th- their own emphasis. Matthew, chapter three, when Jesus was baptized, he went up and immediately, went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. Mark says, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me when people were trying to to prevent children from getting to him. Don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. In Luke, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. In John, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Each of the four Gospels contains some information that the others contain, and each of the four Gospels has some information that are unique to that writing. The four Gospels were originally distributed as scrolls. uh, Back before there were books, Um, the idea of taking pages and sewing them together flat, bound together, uh, really didn't come about for uh, 150, 200 years after Jesus. Uh, They called it a codex. We called it a book. Um, the first Gospels were distributed as, as scrolls, and they might not have ever perceived that what they wrote would someday be compiled and collected and, and consolidated with other writings. What they were doing, they were, they were moving by the Spirit of God to write what they felt God wanted them to communicate. We now have them all bound, and we read them together. We can read them side by side in parallel columns. Um, originally, I think God moved upon Matthew's heart and he wrote what he was convinced he should write. As they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Jesus preferred to call himself Son of Man. Rarely did he identify himself as anything else. His favorite description of himself was Son of Man. And in in the Hebrew context, That was another way of saying human being, really. Son of man conveyed the idea of what we communicate as human being. How odd, how perfect. Very often Jesus would perform a miracle, heal the sick, raise a little dead girl, Uh, have a crippled man walk, and he would follow that miracle, which was supernatural, with a statement about son of man. He just did something really divine or related to deity, and he talked about the human being, and he's clearly talking about himself. Some man's about to be betrayed into the hands of men. He wouldn't always use the personal pronoun, first person, me. Unless he was asked a question. In Mark 14, they're asking him about his identity. Are you the one that we should expect? Are you the son of God? In Mark 14, 62, he answered the question about being son of God by saying, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So he wasn't walking around all the time saying, Hey, I'm son of God. I'm son of God. But when they pressed him during the trial in a legal context about his identity as a charged person, are you son of God? I am. And you will see the Son of Man. He does that thing again where you, know, you got the deity thing, you got the humanity thing. He would do that, maybe as a way of stressing the Incarnation. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Clouds are really important to Jesus. It was his Uber for leaving Earth, his Uber for coming back. When we, when we see you know, the stories of, of the return, he, he, he will come in the cloud. Luke 23, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my, I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. The Gospels give us insight into his relationship with God the Father in, in the most critical and intimate experiences of his life. A lot of ancient religious writings, the holy writings of other religions, leave out the painful stuff. Their leaders and their gods and their deities are always conquering everybody else, but there's rarely a statement of pain or suffering on behalf of the hero of the narrative. Our Bible, very different. It's not whitewashed. Uh, There's suffering and there's pain. There's doubt, there's fear by different characters in the scripture. Jesus breathed his last after saying, Father, I'm entrusting my spirit into your hands. John 20, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These, what John wrote, are written in order that, so he gives us a purpose statement, He clearly expresses the purpose. I wish the other gospel writers did it as concisely as John did. But John, he comes right out and says, these have been written in order that, or so that, or for the driving purpose of you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, that you may come into faith, you may grow in that faith, and you may have life because you've got that faith. These are written so that you may know. So, we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Shortly after the death of Jesus in 30 AD, the people began passing the good news by word of mouth. That was that was the first proclamation of the story of Jesus with people talking about it, sharing it. Um, we know in Acts chapter two, Peter gets up and he uses the opportunity of people listening to him, and he gives a great message of proclamation, word of mouth. And there were probably short written records of Jesus' teachings on pottery and animal hides. Historically, it's been told that people who listened to Jesus and to the apostles sometimes kept notes, just like other people who go to a Bible study. And they jot down a few things, and, not verbatim, but do an outline of what they just heard and take that home. Judean notes were probably written in Hebrew. Galilean notes were probably written in Greek, because in the north part of the country, most of the Jews spoke Greek as their first language. In the southern part of the country, the Hebrews spoke Hebrew as their, as their first language, or Aramaic. None of those written records have survived the weather and warfare of Israel. But, historically, people have said that there were some notes. It could be that the Gospel writers had themselves taken notes, occasionally, or had friends or family or people they knew who had some notes. Maybe they had had said, "Uh, can, can I come over to your place and look at the notes that you kept of the Bible studies you attended to? Or, you heard Jesus speak, so that's possible. Some of those notes might have been available to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, in the academic circles, when it comes to Bible scholarship regarding the Gospels, there's all kinds of debate about the source material of the four Gospels. I do not want to waste your time. Um, I I can talk about it uh, in in one-on-one conversations or outside of our lesson time. The primary sources on the life and ministry of Jesus are these four Gospels. Anything else is secondary the primary sources are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I want us to consider the reliability of those four. The Gospels rest on a reliable tradition, handed down with care in the church. The church was concerned to present the transforming and redeeming significance of Jesus. And I think that there was a conscientious effort to keep those records. The basic purpose of the written record is to proclaim the good news in order to convert the unbeliever and build up the believer in faith. And so John's express purpose, I believe, is supported by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They just all do it a little bit differently. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their account, I think within 25, 30 years after the resurrection. John, on the other hand, waited to the end of his life, uh, maybe 60 years later, Um, John outlived all the other apostles. Uh, The other apostles historically died martyrs' deaths. John apparently died of old age, and he may have lived until uh, 95 or 100 A.D. Um, And so he wrote his 30, 40 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. The Gospels are not biographies. A biography would follow a person's life and give you information pretty much on a regular basis as to uh, what they did, where they went, the events around them. Um, the Gospels are not biographies as historical reports, rather they are selective records. There's some major gaps in Jesus' life here. So a biography would not have those kind of gaps. Um, as, as a child, you know, was between the age of 2 and 12, eh, nothing. Uh, we have that one episode where uh, his family goes to the temple and uh, he, he's a preteen, and he's, he's in the temple uh, debating the scripture with the scholars. And then there's a gap from that episode to his full adulthood when his ministry starts. So it's not a biography in, in the classic sense. Excuse me. Focus on the birth, the dedication, the flight to Egypt mentions his youth, overview of his ministry, and there's focus on selected teachings. We don't have an account of every week of his life, of what he taught everywhere. So, and John's Gospel admits a whole lot more could be written of what he did and said. We have a focus on the Sermon on the Mount. you you got, you know, three chapters devoted to one message. Sermon on the Plain. Um, Some of the teachings that Jesus did, uh, critics of the Bible look and say, well, well, Matthew has manipulated the information and he's added stuff. Or um, would blame Luke for adding a lot, lot of stuff that others don't as if it's uh, questionable. Or the phrasing, uh, some Bible scholars say, well, well, we can't harmonize because they're contradicting each other. Uh, did the man build the house on the sand or did the man build the house on the rock? And when the crippled guy was lowered through the roof, did they, did they disassemble the roof from underneath or did they disassemble the roof from overhead? And I look at that going, guys, it's, it's somebody in the room telling this story and then somebody on the roof telling this story. Um, guys, uh, Matthew is reporting a lot of information from Judea, Luke is reporting a lot of information from Galilee. Doesn't it make sense that Jesus had some great parables? and he told repeatedly in different places, and Luke is reporting the day he was in Galilee telling the parable of the house, and Matthew is in Judea reporting Jesus there telling the story of the house. You built houses differently. And so I I don't see these huge contradictions because very often it's a lesson that Jesus taught in multiple different places. And so the details will, will differ because he adapts the story to the audience there that day. There's a lot more detail of his last week more than any other one week of his ministry. It takes up a huge portion and then resurrection appearances. And so it's it's not biography because it doesn't include the normal, regular, repeated information. I don't think they were intending to be historians. The Gospels have been shown to be historically reliable when they do mention political structures. uh, Luke especially. Uh, You you know, Luke is always going out of his way to tell you who's governor, and who's tetrarch, and who's the magistrate. And that places it within a a time perspective. And we're able to look back to say, okay, according to Roman records, that that fits this particular period. Uh, Our four gospel records are a unique type of literature, never used before the first century. Uh, Nobody had told stories that way before. It's not straight history. Although it does declare an historical rabbi, it's not straight biography, though it does isolate sketches in the life of the perfect man. There are are writings of ancient teachers by their students. Uh, Plato wrote about Aristotle, and it's just a book about stuff that Aristotle said. Doesn't tell us much about his life at all. It's not, Plato's story of Aristotle is not about, and he went here, and he had a conversation with people here. And this, it's, it's uh, the teachings of Aristotle. It's just a, a, a long expression of stuff he said. Well, the gospel doesn't do that. In between stuff that Jesus said, you've got, and they went here, and immediately they went there. And someone asked him a question. And he encountered a lady at a well. And so there's, these, uh, there's a historical narrative, there's conversation, there's dialogue, there's debate, there's miracle, there's parable, another message. And nobody had ever done writing like that before. It's not philosophy, though it certainly records teaching to pattern your life by how to live, how not to live. It's not propaganda, though they are clearly biased toward redemption and certainly seek to persuade a person toward decision. So if that's propaganda, guilty. But it's not using anything that's not true. And very often propaganda is is built upon things that are Kind of queasy when it comes to the truth. It's truth. It is biased. It's trying to persuade. So it is persuasive literature. Really persuasive literature. Really persuasive literature. It has the power to change people's minds and hearts. So the Gospels are inspired confession, if you will. Um, Confession of the life of the ministry, of the teaching, of the death, and of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And I think they're written to persuade people to believe in the prophesied king and the promised Messiah. Matthew really presses that. To believe in the obedient servant and the crucified Savior. Mark really stresses that. The perfect man and son of man. Luke really stresses that and the divine son, the Logos among us. John really stresses that. There is a lot of overlap, but each of them have their nuance, their focus, their passion within what they're writing. You get four portraits. God set in motion four perspectives, apparently based upon the original intended audience. Now the ultimate long-term audience is you and me, the people out there, the the people in Mexico, the people in Ukraine, the people in Tanzania, people on earth every tribe, every nation, every tongue. But the original target audience shaped how each of those earthly writers were used by God to specifically word what they did and to highlight and emphasize what they did. So number one, God identified the needs of the original target. God raised up an individual who was yielded to him and could speak and write clearly to the target group. Back in in week one, I talked to you about what Peter wrote about being carried along by the Holy Spirit. Those who wrote of old were, were driven along by the Spirit of God to say and write what they did. And it is still true. The Gospel writers were driven by the Spirit of God to emphasize what they did because God wanted to say the same story in some unique ways, at least four unique ways, revealing different facets of the character of Jesus. And not speaking exclusively, it would be wrong to take any one gospel and say, well, this one's right and the others didn't get it right. But I've heard that, I've heard that teaching. I think it's a faulty perspective. All four of them are an accurate, reliable report about Jesus. If we find anything that seems to contradict or not harmonize. I don't think the problem is with the scripture. I think it's the problem the problem is with us or how we got it or how we're reading it. And I'll, I'll talk about some of that. Uh, questions at this point. Any thoughts, question, reaction? Okay, uh, in your reading, Uh, you've already read all of Matthew is that right okay Uh, have you started another one okay so uh, do you read Luke tomorrow or mark mark okay and do you read that in one day okay and then two days on Luke okay so um, I'd I'd like to go ahead and give an overview of all all four of them really uh, at, at this point Matthew Uh, He shows the relationship of Jesus to the Jewish faith, written originally to a largely Jewish audience, or it looks that way. Uh, It assumes an intimate knowledge of tradition, of history, and geography of Israel. Now, um, I told you that John lived a long life. Later in his years, he moved to Ephesus. And remember, Jesus had asked John to take care of his mother, Mary. So John moved Mary to Ephesus. And if you visit Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, there is a house on the hill that, that is seen as the home of Mary. Now, the building that's there, not likely it's that old, but it's probably on the spot that John had chosen for Mary to live out her later years. And so the the Old New Testament doesn't give us that information, but it's reliable history that especially after the Roman war with the Jews in 70 AD, John was able to evacuate with Mary and take her to safety. And he he had his his exile on, on the island of Patmos. When he got back off the island of Patmos, he made sure she was safe in Ephesus. And he remained there and remained there until he died of old age. And while he was in his last two decades, a whole lot of young servants of the gospel came to him to be mentored, to be discipled. Uh, they looked at him as he's the last remaining apostle. And so outside of the New Testament, we have historical records that John had students like Papias. So Papias, when he was 20, was studying with John, who was probably 80, 85 years old. So in his later years, he's nurturing the next generation of very young people. Now Papias lived a long life. He lived, he lived well in, into the second century. We have some of the writings of Papias about what John had told him, and I think they're very reliable. And Papias wrote that John had taught him that that first scroll was written by Matthew. It's trustworthy. And so Papias comes along and and he's teaching from the the scroll of Matthew telling people, this gospel is good, it's reliable, and it's from Matthew. And uh, Papias shared information like uh, Matthew was focusing primarily upon a Hebraic audience, either those who knew Jesus as Messiah or did not yet know Jesus as Messiah, but to give them the prophetic background for that. And so we get that, that idea from Papias who wrote, he learned it from John as a young minister. And so uh, we've got that kind of information. So Matthew doesn't come out and say, "Yay, verily, I'm writing this for Hebraic-minded people. But John, who knew Matthew, told his young students, after Matthew was dead, that Matthew was writing this, focusing intentionally upon Hebraic-minded people, people who had grown up Hebrew or uh, were of that Hebraic mindset. And it makes sense. I mean, just everything in it, the, you know, the content of it supports that. So if I tell you Matthew wrote primarily to a target audience originally of a largely Jewish audience that's based upon what John told Papias, or at least what Papias told others that John told him. And everything we read about Papius and his students gives credibility to that. Uh, so Papius is known among the, what they call the fathers of the church, the early patriarchs of the church. Reliable witnesses who knew an apostle or had learned from somebody who had studied with an apostle. And so, Papias is like that link between the, the last surviving apostle and the growing church. So, um, within Matthew, he shows Jesus came to fulfill Old Testament prophecy I mean, repeatedly, Matthew will will have a narrative story and event, and he'll say, "And this was done to fulfill the prophecy." And he'll quote Isaiah, Zechariah, something like that. And so he's always emphasizing, "This was done, and it fulfills what was foretold eight hundred years ago." It shows that Jesus would would judge the Jews for unfaithfulness, like the Old Testament prophets. Uh, forcibly denounces the hypocritical outlook of some of the Pharisees. Now, what? As we read the Gospels, don't assume that all Pharisees were hypocrites. Okay, you do have people like Nicodemus, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and clearly those guys had a hunger, and, and they weren't swept up in the hypocrisy. But they didn't. They knew they didn't have all, all the answers. So when you read about you know, Nicodemus coming at night, he's probably coming because he doesn't want, doesn't want to be seen, but he's coming to Jesus saying, "Man, nobody could do what the stuff you're doing unless God was in it," and so. Please, as you read about the Pharisees, don't dismiss all of them as uh, legalistic, hypocritical bad guys. No, I, I think that's a misunderstanding. Um, I recognize that many of them long for God. They hunger for God. And, and they fall into the category of Simeon waiting in the temple and uh, others who... who, who uh, didn't like the corruption and the, the power-hungry religious leaders and didn't agree with the Sadducees. Uh, so you know, give them a break, okay? Um, Matthew shows Jesus as the promised Messiah, as Son of David, and the emphasis upon the, the royalty within um, Jesus' line. And then Jesus as rabbi. Uh, Matthew really likes the word rabbi. Um, In the Old Testament, how many synagogues did you see in the Old Testament as you read it? Zero synagogues in the Old Testament. You open up Matthew's Gospel, how many synagogues? They're everywhere. Everywhere you have a Jewish neighborhood, there's a synagogue. And Jesus had a habit of attending synagogue. Wow. So in the intertestamental period, really during the exile, that whole whole idea. Okay, uh, did, did, last week did 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 your instructor give you an overview of the the synagogue experience? Can you go over just a little bit. Uh, what? He just he kind of just mentioned it a little bit. Okay. I'm so glad that synagogue idea came along because when, when, when the people went into exile, when the Judeans were taken into exile, they they um, they lost everything of their identity of the land. Remember, uh, there, there were three three waves of exiles where um, Daniel was taken with the first group of Jews in 605 and uh, Ezekiel was taken with the next wave in the 590s and then in 586, the last wave of, of Jews were taken. And as the last wave of Jews were being taken into captivity, uh, their king, Zedekiah, is about to have his eyes gouged out and he's gonna be taken away in chains. The t- The palace of the king will be destroyed. The whole royal family, I mean, Zedekiah's wife and kids and mother-in-law and every all the craftsmen or the artisans, the educated, the wealthy, the high class, uh, the soldiers who survived the war, all taken into in captivity. and then. The temple would be destroyed; not one stone would be left upon another. Burned, uh, all of the uh, all of the uh, the utensils and gold and stuff. You remember that was stolen by Nebuchadnezzar, and it winds up in um, um, uh, the the court of the Babylonians, and they're they're drinking the the they're drinking to their gods, and really getting drunk, and. Uh, toasting their gods and adoring their gods while, while drinking out of the goblets from the temple in Jerusalem. And that's when the hand came and wrote on the wall. Remember that? Okay. That was the end of the Babylonian kingdom. So, in that period, as the Jews were taken out of Judea into captivity, some of them managed to get the scrolls out of the temple. Now, at that point, people did, the Jewish people didn't have a habit of meeting on a weekly basis. That was unheard of. To meet locally and, and pray together, or worship or read scripture, that, that didn't happen, okay? That happened in exile. They managed to take scrolls with them. And as the Jews were dumped in villages, in small clusters in exile, they, they, they would say, well, I, I managed to get out with this scroll. It's written by Isaiah. And there's a community of Jews five miles down the river. I, I heard they have one from a guy named Zechariah. And then somebody else heard that, that there's a village down the road, they've got Exodus, but they don't have Deuteronomy. And so the, the different pockets of Jews in exile were, were trying to find out which village has which scrolls. And so they said, you know, we, we should all make copies of the ones we have and share them. Let's trade them with the people up and down river. And so they started training a group of young men that we now didn't know today as the scribes. That was the beginning of the whole idea of we need scribes. We need kids trained to write and I'll tell you what, we'll pay them. We'll, we'll pool our money and we'll pay them to, to make copies. They, they were the ancient copy machines. That's who the scribes were and they began saying, well, okay, we've got several scrolls, um, how about if we come over to Gershom's house on Friday night on Sabbath and somebody read for about an hour or so, and then, Hey, after reading, we'll have somebody just explain a little bit or do a devotional, a short sermon. And then, hey, uh, if somebody has a, has a guitar or other stringed instrument, bring it with you, and we'll sing one of the psalms. And if somebody brings some food, okay, does this sound familiar? Let's read the scripture, has somebody explain what the scripture reading meant, sing some songs, pray a little bit, and then let's eat some food. That's where they that came from. And apparently somebody said, hey, hey, this is nice. Can we do it again tomorrow? Because it's Sabbath on Saturday morning. And so they began the habit. And at the time, the Greek language ruled that part of the world. And so they called themselves gathering or get-together, which in Greek is sunagoge. Agoge is, is gather. Sun is together. It means we get together. That's what synagogue means, a get-together. And then they did it in people's houses for years until they had too many people to fit into Gershom's living room. That's when they said, okay, let's go to the magistrate, and see if we can buy a little piece of land and put up just a plain little building. And, and we'll call it the building for the synagogue the synagogue building. And let's get together for study of God's word. Let's get together for prayer that we worship him. And let's together, get together for fellowship with one another in community and have a good time. And so that, that, that was the idea of the synagogue. Over time, they would elect somebody to preside, would be the president of their local synagogue, to, to manage things. And then whoever was really good at explaining the scripture, I mean really great at explaining the scripture, would be called Rob. Great. And so Rob is gonna, Rob. Not Rob, but Rab. And, and if you wanted to tell somebody, my Rab, my great one, And in Hebrew, my great one is rabbi or rabbi. And so the idea of having a rabbi was simply somebody who was really good at talking about God's word at the synagogue and explaining it. That's what it, I think that's a great idea. Now, there's nothing in the Old Testament from God saying, thou shalt meet together on a weekly basis to read God's word, to sing songs of praise, to have a meal together, and to have sermons all of that developed in the synagogue period. You open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're doing it all over the place, which is a great idea. It's just sometimes in the explaining of scripture, they weren't doing it very well. That's where Jesus comes in. And so I don't look at the synagogue as a bad thing. I look at it as awesome because it, it does represent people lost their nation, their king, their job, their home, their property, their business, their family connection, their neighborhood. And they're dumped in a foreign country. And others are dumped in their homeland. And while they're dumped in another land, they come up with the idea of, we should get together on a weekly basis and read the scripture and talk about it and pray and worship God. And then we'll break bread together. All these are great ideas. And Jesus was one of those that people said, you're great at this. That's what rabbi means. You're, really, you're, you're my great one. In my eyes, you are rabbi. You are, you are to me, really great at explaining God's word. That's that's the basis of rabbi. So when they call him rabbi, at least his boys really mean it. I think when, they call, when the disciples called Jesus rabbi, they were seriously saying, to me, you are great at this. Now, others may have been calling it, and there may have been a little cynicism to it. So uh, as you read, pay attention to who's saying it, and whether it seems to be an authentic statement of title, or whether it's their way of, of poking at him. Now, um, Mark, Mark's Gospel. You read Mark, and it's like he's always in a hurry. Uh, one of his favorite words is uthus, which means immediately. And immediately they went here. And immediately he went, it's like he's in a rush to get to the next narrative, which is cool. He, 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 you get that sense of urgency. It emphasizes action rather than teaching. So there's more focus on the narrative and getting to the next event than there is on large blocks of teaching. Matthew and Mark, big blocks of teaching. Matthew, not so much. Uh, written most likely to the Roman Church during persecution for distribution in the Imperial Capital. It assumes no knowledge of Jewish customs, so he, he, he doesn't include a lot of the Jewishness that um, Matthew does. He shows that discipleship involves suffering and rejection no question you read mark's gospel and suffering is normal rejection is normal instead of thinking you mean when i accept jesus everything will be smooth in my life you read gospel of mark you don't get that i mean mark is right very clear and it's not a different gospel it's the emphasis it's the nuance of understanding and then the path of humble service and suffering is what the crucified savior the Savior would be crucified, and he chose a path of humility, of serving and suffering. And only at his second coming would he appear as the grand king in his glory. And then Luke, blessings of salvation brought by Jesus for a predominantly Gentile audience. Now again, Papias learned from John, and John knew Luke, and so John is telling Papias, who's now telling us, that uh, Luke is really addressing a Gentile audience. And by tradition, he was a physician, and having read Luke in the Greek, the man was educated, and he used the highfalutin vocabulary that he had. I mean, he, he, he used very technical terms. When it came to politics and government, he used the precise terminology. When he talked about healing, he used medical terminology. So for him, healing was a dramatic supernatural event a miracle of God, but he would talk about it like a doctor would, because he understood it. Uh, There are more women in Luke's Gospel than the other three Gospels combined, which makes sense. He's a physician. As as a person, he'd had more contact with women just in his vocation and his experience. And um, the the focus on the grace of God revealed in Jesus, God's grace is very clear. Grace is present in all four Gospels, but it, it is, really a point of focus and Luke has numerous chapters that don't appear in any of the other four Gospels and in it there's this encounter with Jesus with the, what would be considered the least worthy, the outcast, the sinful women, the tax collectors, the outcast, people on the edges who would not have been normally impacted by Jewish religious leaders, by other rabbis. Well, Jesus, I mean, he, he's, he's out there and encountering those that normally would be scorned by the, the, most of the Pharisees, Sadducees. Um, Luke's Gospel, um, it, it's a central experience of Jesus to be encountering and spending time with those on the edges of society. And then John's Gospel. Jesus is the one sent by God the Father to be a savior of the world for worldwide distribution. Uh, written not so much from a Hebraic perspective, but from, a, uh, but from a, a, a true voice that could speak into the Hellenistic culture. Not that he's embracing Hellenistic culture, but he has phrased everything so that those who are in that philosophy and culture and theater and arts could read John's Gospel and find that it spoke their language. The Son of God has his Father's authority. I'm a grandfather now. We have nine grandchildren. I know what it is to talk to grandchildren. I know what it is to have lived so long that when I speak to you, some of you, I'm old enough to be your grandfather. Others of you, I'm old enough to be your father. Well, I think that's a good thing. If I honor the experience that God has given to me, I can speak into your life. One of the things I love about YWAM, yes, it's youth with a mission, but YWAM has nurtured a culture of respect for those who've lived beyond youth, but still have a young heart for God, but have been beaten up a few times in life, who've been on the disciples' journey, have struggled through the mountains and valleys, and have applied God's word to that journey. I I love the way YWAM has recognized there are people who can still speak into the young life with a heart for God. John's like that. John's writing later in life, he's writing 30, 40 years after the other Gospels writers. He's writing probably 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And in it, he writes that the Son has his Father's authority. That the Son lives in close communion with the Father. He deals with the deep things of God in revealing the Father to us. And the eternal significance of God became man. We use that that fancy term incarnation. It's logos dwelt with us. John doesn't start off with the traditional um, nativity story of the birth of Jesus and the manger and the shepherds and and the angels coming. John begins with, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And the Logos came and dwelt, pitched his tent among us. And so he he starts off differently. A a careful examination and comparison of the four Gospels, reveals that the first three are noticeably similar. In fact, they share a lot of the same sentences, word for word. John is quite different. The other three have extreme agreement in their language and their vocabulary, very often using the same or similar words. The material included, the substance, very much the same in many places. The ordering of the events and the sayings from the life of Christ are often in the same order. 91% of Mark can be found in Matthew. 91% of Mark. 53% of Mark can be found in Luke. Of the 40 parables that Jesus taught, none of them are found in John. Uh, You you did get a list of, of parables, right? Now, he does have some parabolic sentences, metaphors, in John, but none of the parabolic stories appear in John. But Matthew has 24 of them, Mark has nine parables, Luke has 28 parables, okay? And so that sheet is a good example just of the parables of the information that those three share and and that is representative of the other stories, the narratives, the events. Of the 34 plus miracles recorded that are attributed to the work of Jesus prior to the resurrection, only seven miracles are in John. So John does have miracles, but not nearly as many as the other three, okay? So, because of this agreement, these three books are often called the Synoptic Gospels because the word synoptic is based upon the old Greek word sun, which means together, as in synagogue, synagogue, and uh, optic uh, from uh, optasia, which is seeing something, the optics of something, the sight of something. Therefore, synoptic means things that are seen together, happening together, and I see it. And so, uh, when you see the term synoptic gospels, that's, that's the fancy way of saying Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as opposed to John, who's doing his own thing. And he does it really well, okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke do a wonderful thing. Well, let's respect the fact that all four of them were moved upon by God, and they said, Lord, I, I, will, I will write what you want me to write. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll tell the, way, I'll tell the story the way you want it told. And I, I think they did. So I, I don't find fault with any differences in the Synoptic Gospels. There are some differences in words chosen or how a parable is ended. I think it's fascinating and, and we will, tomorrow I'm gonna give you um, a template for how to study and interpret parables. So, because I know in your small groups, that's a big part of this week is is attention to the parables. Well, I'm gonna give you some tools tomorrow that you can use to read and to interpret properly. And to show you sometimes the same parable, the same parabolic story appears in different gospels, but in a different situation. And I'll show you, it's the same story that Jesus used, but when you read the context, you realize He's talking to two different sets of people in two different parts of the country on different days. And he does a different punchline. And it's all about the punchline. It's all about how does he end the parable. So we'll look at that tomorrow. I have fun with it because we recognize that parables were not invented by Jesus. And some of the parables that Jesus told were stock-in-trade parables that rabbis used. It's just that he, he would introduce a punchline that nobody had ever done before. He would use it to make a point that no other other rabbi had ever done, and I'll, I'll share that with you tomorrow. Okay, so that's a teaser for for parabolic study tomorrow. Okay, so uh, it's four o'clock. Is this a good time to take our break, okay. or four thirty? Okay, yes, it's it works for me. Okay, I've got some water. I'm good. Okay. Now, when we get to 4.30, watch me, and if I'm, t- if I'm on, a, on a rant or something, just yeah, be sure to throw something at me, okay? Now, <laughs> now let me ask you this. Uh, we use the word gospel, which, which I've read the Greek, and the word gospel doesn't appear in the Greek New Testament. Can somebody tell me where the word gospel comes from? It's a good word. I like it. It's just not a Greek word. It's not in the Greek New Testament. It means good news. So, what? It means good news. Okay. But anybody know where or which language used gospel or its variation historically? Any guesses? Yes. It's actually not Latin. No. No. But that's a good guess. Okay. on the British? James. Um, yes, but they borrowed it freely from a different language. Yeah. Okay? okay. Hmm. What'd you say? My guess yes, 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 absolutely. Okay? Now, uh, there was a time in which in the 1200s and 1300s, many of the words used in Germany were also used in England uh, with, with the, the Saxons and the Anglos and the Normans. And, and the way migrations were, there were always migrations on mainland Europe and, the, and Great Britain, the islands. So migrations back and forth and so trading language. So for a while there, many of the Germanic words of what would be considered middle German informed early English. Now let me give you a, a, a historical step as to the words that have been used. The word angalia in ancient Greek meant message. So angelia meant message. Angelos was a messenger. We, we recognize that as angel. So angelos was a messenger, an envoy, what we call an angel or an agent. Okay, Somebody sent under authority of somebody else to deliver a message. Now the angels in the Bible who are angels of God are messengers of God, agents of God to do what he wants them to do. And so our word angel is simply anglicized of the Greek angelos, which is a messenger, and they would deliver angelia, messages. Now, in ancient Greek, if you wanted to take a noun and turn it into something good, you would put e-u on the beginning. Like, logia is a statement or message. logia or eulogy, is a good message. You've heard of eulogy? Eulogies are usually spoken at funerals or memorial services when somebody gets up and eulogizes, they're giving a good story, a good message. Now, if you take Angalia and you put the e-u in front of it, it becomes ou great news, great message, awesome announcement. So ou is what appears in the Greek New Testament repeatedly as a noun, but also as a verb. I love that the shepherds showed up, and there were angels who, And it uses the verb, "u angelizomai." Good newsed the shepherds. The angels, good newsed the shepherds. And we put that into English. We have to make it proper. Um, Proclaimed good news. Expressed good news. Announced good news. It's literally one verb. "U angelizomai" is to good news somebody, and that's that's repeatedly used. Now, in Latin, "u angelion." was spelled E-V-A-N-G-E-L. Now, the Latin V was pronounced U. It doesn't, they didn't have the V sound. So the Latin spelling is what has come into the English language. So our word evangel, evangelical, evangelism, evangelist, or, or the English pronunciation of the Latin spelling of the Greek word. You follow that? It's the English pronunciation of the Latin spelling, of the Greek word. Now, in the Greek, there's no V. There's no there's no V sound. There is a U sound. So, U angelia, is good news, great message, awesome announcement. In Latin, you got the V, and so that's what's come into the English language. Now, in the 13th century, in English and in German, both would say the word Gott Spellen, Spellen being a story. Or narrative or message. GOD mit Umlaut, with the two dots, is not God, the deity, but God as good, great, wonderful. And so GOD with, with Umlaut, the two dots, is expressing something that's well told or good news. So Godspellen, um, there was a play, theatrically, musical, years ago, Godspell. Same thing. It was, it was that transition between Godspellen, Godspell, Gospel. So over time, the Germans still use that within, within the old, um, proper German language. Godspellen means good news, good message. In the English language, it was Godspellen became Godspell, became Gospel. The D just dropped out. And so Gospel, the modern word, is the English pronunciation of the old German word which means good news, good message. Awesome announcement. Because that's what the Greek, ouangelion, mean. So, ouangelion, as a noun, is good news. Ouangelizomai is the verb, I good news you, or I proclaim to you a great message. So that's where the word gospel comes from. And so the way way Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they use it in there. And so they're not using the word gospel, that's our word, they're using the word uangaleon and, and Jesus told them, this gospel of the kingdom is to pro- be proclaimed in the whole world and then the end will come. So it is euangelism. So It's more than you wanted to know, but now you know it, okay? Uh, Matthew, let, let's, let's consider the content. Within Matthew's gospel, we have the story of Jesus, including large blocks of teaching. So there's narrative teaching, narrative teaching. From the announcement of his birth to the commissioning of the disciples to make disciples of the disciples to make disciples of the Gentiles. The author doesn't identify himself. Nowhere in the book does he say, I, Matthew, am writing this. Uh, Daniel, in his, I mean, he does that. I, Daniel, was here. I, Daniel, saw this, and so he includes himself in it. Uh, several times, Paul, I, Paul, write this. See, I write with a big hand. So, you know, it's nice when a writer does self-identify. The writer of the first scroll of gospel did not self-identify, but in 125 AD, Pastor Papias, who would one day become a bishop, but when he was still a pastor, he wrote that the apostle Matthew wrote that first scroll because John told him he did. And so Papias trusted John. I trust Papias who reported with John because John would have known these things, okay? Um, now, modern scholarship is divided and uh, you can get a commentary that says nobody can know whoever wrote it and therefore, and, and sometimes will diminish the authority of Matthew's Gospel because we don't know clearly who wrote it because he didn't make a claim. I, I think the testimony of the early church fathers is enough for me to say John said it was Matthew. Even if Matthew didn't sign it, John's testimony is good enough for me. And the early church by the third and fourth century was asking when people read it, does it change their life more into the character of Christ? That was a crucial question. When people in your church read this document, does it affect a change in their life so that they become more like Jesus? And they were answering, yeah. So that was a huge question. uh, The date of it is unknown. And the question is, did, did he use Mark as a basis? If he did, then he may have written it in the 70s of the first century. If he didn't use Mark, he may have written it as early as the 50s of the first century. Now, Mark's content—the uh, story of Jesus from his baptism to his resurrection—so Mark doesn't include a nativity story. About two-thirds of which tells of his ministry in Galilee. So, two-thirds of Mark's gospel is just in the northern part of the country of Galilee, not so much in Judea. Uh, the last third narrates the final week in Jerusalem. So, it's just—you know—it's Galilee two-thirds, and then boom, one one-third of all he wrote was the last week, Passion Week, in Jerusalem. The author again doesn't sign it. The tradition of the early church was John Mark. Papias, around 125, said John told him and, and taught the others that this second scroll was written by John Mark, who was a companion of Paul, see Colossians 4, and later of Peter. 1 Peter 5.13 mentions him. And so John Mark, being that, that young fellow, that might be the John Mark who ran away from the garden and when the soldier grabbed him, pulled off his outer cloak, so he's running away, so that John Mark. Um, the date, probably around AD 65, so according to Papias, it was soon after the death of Paul and Peter in Rome, which we put it in the mid-60s. So it's within 30, 35 years of the resurrection. Luke major content, the story of Jesus from the get-go, from before he's born. Um, and Luke wrote Luke and Acts. The thing is, in the ancient world, first century at that time, uh, the basic scroll could only handle so much before it was too bulky or fragile. If you if you tried to roll up too much on the roll, it would fall apart. So you'd unroll it and, and you know it would get messed up in the middle. And so Luke and Acts combined was problematic because it was just a little bit too big for the scroll. And so he wrote the gospel portion, and then he wrote the early church portion. And over time, uh, in the distribution and collection, somebody thought it was smart to, to put all four of the gospels together and not put Luke at the end because John wrote the last gospel, and you wind up splitting the story. And when you read the last paragraph of Luke's Gospel and the first paragraph paragraph of Acts, you're like, well, it's obvious. It's a smooth flow. Same guy wrote it. He's writing a continuous narrative. Don't interrupt it. So it's just, we do because that's the way the books got put together. The organization was not inspired by God. The order of the books and how they fit in relation to each other is not part of the inspired work of God. The content of each of the writings, that's the inspired part. And so, it's through church history, they've been collected and organized in different order. Not a big deal. So, um, The author was, according to early tradition, Luke the physician and the sometimes companion of the Apostle Paul mentioned in Colossians 4, apparently the only Gentile author in the Bible, the only non-Hebraic. Um, the date is again uncertain. But scholars are divided between a date before the death of Paul, around AD 64, and one after the fall of Jerusalem, which would be after 70. Uh, If he made use of Mark's Gospel, then it was probably later, um, after 70. Uh, I think somewhere between 59 and 63 of the first century. Now, Matthew, his recipients. Again, he doesn't state who he's targeting, but Papias learned from John. And when you read the context, probably Jewish Christians with a commitment to the Gentile mission, most commonly thought to have lived in and around Antioch of Syria. During the Roman occupation, it was common for Jews to get fed up with life in Judea, and especially Jerusalem, and move north or east into Syria. Uh, at that time, that, the, the Romans had less and less control over Syria as they were losing their grip on that area. And so a lot of Jews decided, I've got cousins over there. And so there was a large group of expats from Judea and Jerusalem who had moved into Syria that might have been who Matthew was writing to originally. And then they liked what they received and they copied it and sent it other places. And uh, some of them had relatives in North Africa, Alexandria. And so their old copies of Matthew found in Alexandria, they probably were sent from their relatives in Syria, which is great. So originally, the apparently his original targets were were very much Hebrew Christians or Hebrews that uh, were pondering about who this whole Jesus Messiah type thing was. And Matthew's gospel was a perfect thing to share with your friends and family who were who were considering it. Uh, the main emphases, the main points: <coughs> Jesus is the Son of God; he's the Messianic King of the Jews foretold by the Hebrew prophets. And there are over three, I, I, 300 easily identify, identifiable foretelling prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus, about the Messiah, about the one who would come. Um, and I'll, later on, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a list, and, and probably Thursday I'll go through slides that, that highlight the, the important ones. Uh, if you have not seen evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell, excellent book that that he he details. I mean, he's got a list. I think his list has three hundred twenty-seven, and he'll give the Old Testament and the New Testament, the the prophecy and the fulfillment What's that called? Uh, evidence that demands a verdict. He also has a sequel, more evidence that demands a verdict. <laughs> So, In the first one, he's dealing primarily with messianic evidence. And in the second one, he's dealing primarily with canonical evidence, um, evidence of the reliability and inspiration of the canon of Scripture. And the first one, he's dealing with the person of Jesus and how to talk about Jesus to others with messianic prophecy. He's not the only one who has compiled those lists, the others even before him. Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is God present with us with miraculous power. That Jesus is the church's Lord. The teaching of Jesus has continuing importance for God's people. It wasn't just for the first century Jews. It was for all people in all times in all circumstances all over the world. The gospel of the kingdom is for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. Now, for those who aren't Hebraic thinking or did not have training in Jewish history, there are some challenges. And so I've taught around the world of people that they really didn't know the Hebraic roots of the Christian faith. And it helps to have instruction of some of the historical background from Matthew's Gospel to understand the Hebraic roots of the Christian faith. Matthew assumed you knew that stuff because around him everybody did. Well, 2,000 years later, different continents, different languages, different cultures, Uh, sometimes we have to to bring it up with each other. Uh, Mark's recipients, the church in Rome, which accounts for its preservation along with the longer Matthew and Luke, even though it contained a lot of information or that Matthew's gospel has so much of Mark in it. Mark's gospel has been recognized on its own, it's worth reading. So after you've read Mark, Matthew's gospel and then you get into Mark, you're saying, well, I just read this. Well, yeah, you did. Or you may have read the same teaching in a different context. Sometimes, it is, sometimes it's in the same context. Sometimes Matthew is telling the very same story, same words, same day, same audience, but sometimes not. Pay attention to those details. Then, um, the main emphases in Mark's gospel, the time of God's rule, the kingdom of God, has come with Jesus. The kingdom of God is in you. It is here. Jesus has brought about the new exodus promised in Isaiah. Uh, Mark uses some terminology that looks at the first exodus, exodus as a foreshadowing of what Jesus is doing, which the book of Hebrews picks up and really runs with. So Mark's gospel gives hints of that. Hebrews later just, I mean, really elaborates that. The kingly Messiah came in weakness. His identity, a secret, except to those to whom it is revealed. And he's really secretive about it. Don't tell anybody about this. He'll do something miraculous, and he's like, well, um, uh, go show yourself to the priest, but don't talk about it, okay? And so it, it's that, um, it's that ambition that Jesus has to go and suffer and die. That's his secret ambition. Um, and so it, it's when his time is full, then everybody's supposed to talk about it. It's not to, not to be a secret forever. But up until he is ready to confront the authorities, he wants them to keep it a secret. And so Mark, Mark has that nuance in it. Um, the way of the new exodus leads to Jesus' death in Jerusalem. That's inevitable. The way of disciple, discipleship is to take up a cross and follow him. You want to be first, become last. The way up is down. You want to live, die. That's, that, that comes out clearly. In Luke, his recipients, uh, it's addressed to Theophilus. Now, some say this is a person named Theophilus. Others say, well, Theophilus means, technically, lover of God, friend of God, Theos Phileus, a friend of God, lover of God. So, But it, it also was a common name in families who wanted their son to have a spiritual inclination. So Theophilus is a way of parents saying, we want you to to hunger for God. Uh, And if it is a person, which I think it is, in keeping with such prefaces prefaces in Greco-Roman literature, he was probably the patron of Luke Acts, therefore underwriting its publication. For somebody to write that much, it would be nice to have a patron to say, look, you, you've collected all the information. You've done an investigative you know, study. It's now time for you to record it. But it, you, you need materials and time. I will pay you to take a sabbatical from life, and I'll I'll purchase the raw materials so that you have something to write on. So that stuff was expensive to have quality animal hide, or quality paper. The 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 parchment that they would use from the reeds the good quality stuff that was expensive and so to have somebody buy it for you and so it's been suggested that theophilus was his patron who said look i'll pick up the tab i i I will supply you with the materials you need to write this story because you you talk to mary you you talk to all the the main people so you've collected this data so i i think theophilus is probably that that patron that he's You know, the way modern writers will will, um, dedicate their books to somebody is just, uh, my son just got his PhD and he dedicated his his thesis to me and and it it honored me. It's it's sort of like, I I think that's what Luke is doing here, he's honoring um, Theophilus. So, um, the implied readers are Gentile Christians whose place in God's story is ensured through the work of Jesus Christ and the Spirit. So, Luke's gospel has more emphasis upon the stories that would impact the Gentiles. We know that Jesus was to the Jew first. That was his focus. Uh, an out of town woman would come and, and want uh, healing and Jesus emphasized, well, I'm, I'm, I'm here for the Jews. And then she comes up with, you know, even the dogs get the crumbs under the table. And he looks at her and she's from out of town. <laughs> and he recognizes, wow, she's, she's sharp. And he acknowledged he would de- not deny the crumbs from the table. And he uses the term for pet dog. So it's not, he's not demeaning the way. He's not calling the woman a mongrel. He, he, he's acknowledging even a pet dog does deserve the crumbs. You're right. And so, But Jesus, in that, even in that context, is very clear that his primary mission is to die and to proclaim himself as the Messiah foretold by the Hebrew prophets with the intent that it go into the world which fulfills the covenant given to Abraham, blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations of the world. And that, that covenant has not been done away with. And so it's obvious in the opening parts of the book of Acts, it's time, Jesus did to the Jew first, now it's time to go to the Gentiles. And so that's the whole thing of, of, um, of Peter seeing the food come down in the sheets, and nothing's unclean. and and Paul being called, so... Mark Mark doesn't have that kind of focus, Luke does. Luke has that focus upon the Gentiles, anticipating that's gonna blow open one day. God's story is ensured through the work of Jesus and by the Spirit. The emphasis in Luke's Gospel, God's Messiah has come to his people, Israel, with the promised inclusion of Gentiles, that Jesus came to save the lost, including every kind of marginalized person whose traditional religion would put them outside the boundaries. Jesus' ministry is carried out under the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke has no problem inserting the Holy Spirit, recognizing the Holy Spirit is present. The necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection, it was necessary, it was inevitable. It would fulfill Old Testament promises for the forgiveness of sin. That comes out strongly in Luke.